It's May 13th, 2018, and this is episode 365 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And special guest Alejandro Machado. <laughs> Hello. So guys, this is our first recording after we were live in person. What do you think? I got so much positive feedback from longtime listeners of the show and just friends of mine who had never tried to listen to the show before, but were inspired by the live episode. And for me, it was kind of a dream come true to be on stage doing the show with you guys. And I just really love the experience. So I'm so glad we got to do that. And I hope we get to do it again. The energy of the audience was quite infectious. I wish we could have just stayed there for the whole evening and hung out with them for as long as possible. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think it winds up being a prototype for stuff that we'd like to do in the future. So I'm pretty excited about that. As a first experiment, it was wildly successful. What do you think, Andreas? <laughs> you have a good time? I had a wonderful time. And besides all of the fun we had and great value, I think that the guests had, we're also going to raise quite a bit of money for the local meetup group that was the main reverse sponsor of the event. That's the Bitcoin and Open Blockchain Meetup or Bob Meetup in Chicago. I kept hearing about this guy, Bob, who's going to be the beneficiary of the meetup. I'm like, <laughs> who's Bob? <laughs> Just kidding. No. <laughs> It's a great name for a meetup. They actually had these t-shirts that said, hello, my name is Robert, but you can call me Bob. <laughs> so another thing that came up during the show, actually, we didn't talk about it during the show, but it came up after the show in kind of conversations with some listeners, was that LTB and an LTB has kind of always been on the cutting edge of trying out new things. And we were falling behind on Lightning. We've talked about it a couple of times, but we haven't actually kind of dug in from a technical level outside of Andreas's personal experiments. And I am proud to say that after just a couple of days, actually, of uh, working on it, by the time this episode airs, we're going to have, and it's actually working today, lightning tipping set up for first LTB show and then for the entire network, it sounds like within the reasonably near future, once we kind of get the tech down. Oh, that's so great. Really cool to hear that that was implemented. Yeah. So if you're an early adopter of Lightning and you're looking for another place to kind of try it out, then just head over to the episode page for this and future episodes, and you'll be able to find either a link or an embedded tip widget there. We're kind of still going back and forth on how the exact implementation is going to look. So I was talking to one of the developers who's working on it, and I was like, what do we do with this once we get it? And he's like, well, you can tell me, and then I can withdraw it to you from the command line. And I was like, the command line? What? So it's still very early days. If you aren't already kind of dug into Lightning and you don't have that developer level expertise, you can check it out. But no hard feelings if it's not for you quite yet, because it sounds like we're still fairly early in the technology process, but exciting nonetheless. Apparently, it was a pretty easy setup. I was expecting about two weeks, all told, but we were able to get it up in just three or four hours. Yes, and major kudos goes to the first person to give LTB its first milli Satoshi. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So the Petro came up during our LTB live show. In fact, it was one of my favorite moments because it was the one and only time during the entire evening that we got loudly, loudly heckled by a member of the audience. And we didn't know why we were getting heckled, but I think, Adam, you were playing devil's advocate. We were mostly just kind of talking about the Petro without making any judgment on it, just kind of bringing it up as an example of a state-based cryptocurrency. And one of the audience members who I later found out had just managed to escape literally from Venezuela, shouted out that it's bullshit or something like that. 
that we don't know what we're talking about, which is not entirely inaccurate. So it's really great to be able to have a conversation with somebody who does have a little bit more experience with it. And I think that we're actually going to attempt to talk to her in the future, too. That didn't wind up getting scheduled for now. But definitely, as time goes on, there will be more topics of conversation about this, because it seems like that experiment is kind of a first kind of leading indicator of this stuff and probably won't be the last time we see something like this. And to be fair, the audience member who heckled us is a big fan of LTB, came and said hello afterwards and told me a, a remarkable story of using Bitcoin based on the advice and knowledge she gained from listening to our show, among other things, to help more than 50 families escape and migrate from Venezuela. Yeah, that was a really inspirational story. I, I do hope we get to talk to her on the show. But Anyway, today we have Alejandro here, and uh, we're going to be talking about some of these same topics. Absolutely. So Alejandro, I think that I'd like to start this off kind of just from a, a blank slate, regardless of the conversation that we've had about this in the past. Kind of what do you think about the Petro? What's your background in the space? Just give us a little bit about you and then just lead right into, into the Petro topic and we'll start the discussion. Yes, yeah, start with the background. <laughs> first things first. Who are you anyway? <laughs> So um, I'm Venezuelan, and uh, I studied computer science at Venezuela's Technical University, Universidad Simón Bolívar. I have been following the crypto space for about a year. I've been mostly beginner level stuff up until very recently that I dug into it. And you know how things go. You usually fall into the rabbit hole and you start learning new things. And I read Andrea's book and I started going deeper and deeper into it. That was around the time when the Petro started to, to make the headlines. And having a lot of experience with what the government does, because my family fled Venezuela, I have many friends who have already already fled, and I'm helping some other friends flee now. I kind of see the Petro from that background because I know how the government operates, and, and I know exactly why they want Petro to save them this time. The, the government is always seeking rents. That's what they do. That's what they've always done. Venezuela has been kidnapped by these people who are extracting oil rents from the legitimate citizens. And they're using it only to fund themselves and to fund the military that keeps them in power. And this is a, a, a situation that we've seen over the years. This government has, between Chavez and Maduro, it's, it's been almost 20 years now of the same rule. And I quite know their style and I know where they're, where they're coming from. And the Petro, to me, and I think to most Venezuelans, is yet another attempt at taking something that seems to be money falling away and leveraging it so they can stay in power just a little bit longer. The government has a long history of financing itself using debt, using Wall Street debt. And some people have coined the term, you know, defaulting on their citizens because that's what they've been doing. What the government does is they have the necessity to funding themselves using outside money because the economy in Venezuela is in shambles and the only thing that they produce is oil. What they're trying to do is to take the reputation or you know the, the history of payments on Wall Street and, and, and so on that, that they've had very like good actually history of payments uh, in, in Wall Street because they've been prioritizing paying their debt so they keep access to the oil markets because they need to be able to sell their oil. So they're trying to play that card and say, hey, we're still a state that has oil and we have the ability to keep producing oil. So they're just switching to the newest fad, trying to, to do something similar to Long Island tea, you know, when they switch to blockchain and stuff. So it's a trendy thing to do now. I think that's what they're trying to do. They're, they're just trying to say, hey, 
we are new, we're using this new technique, and this is what we're going to do to pivot ourselves. But in reality, there hasn't been need for them to change their ways. I mean, there's no indication that the Petro will be a relief for Venezuelans in any way, because the government it does, certainly does not intend to slow down the money printing machine that they've been running for a long time. And it, it, you know, as you know, they, they're responsible for hyperinflation, the only hyperinflation in the continent and probably the world as we speak right now. They have a long history of mismanagement and they just don't know what they're doing. And, and now since they are switching to blockchain, some people try to like give them the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, but you know, it can't be that bad because they're using crypto now. And you know, that, that really bothers me sometimes because they don't have the context of seeing the government, how they operate and how they've defaulted on the citizen and how they've repressed and ha have been drifting into authoritarianism and, uh, you know, denying people basic rights. So I have friends who have been jailed for protesting. I have friends whose fathers have been imprisoned for a long time. Obviously, I have a bias uh, against a government that is so fierce against opponents uh, like that. And in, in this case, it's my government and it's the government of, of the country where I was born or was raised. I, I lived most of my life there. My story is, uh, is that it's just being, being subject to, to watching what, what the government has been doing with the people. I just see the same pattern over and over again. And the Petra is just the latest iteration of that. One of the important pieces of context we haven't yet mentioned, Alejandro, you said that, you know, they have in the past funded and financed basically this dictatorship with money borrowed from Wall Street. And what has changed in all of this pattern of behavior is that Venezuela has been now for a couple of years under sanctions. And as a result, they can no longer finance through Wall Street. Right. Yeah. So someone mentioned the idea that cryptocurrencies are unstoppable and are censorship resistant. So since they see the situation as Wall Street is censoring you or the U.S. government is censoring you, you could gain access to credit and you can get it, gain access to, to money using channels that are unstoppable. And that's, I think, what really drove them to this world. If one person is being oppressed by a government and they use Bitcoin to leave that structure of power, then a government can certainly do that. And the picture that they're trying to paint is that the U.S. government is trying to oppress them by denying them access to credits that they think they deserve. But I think the international community thinks that they don't because what they're doing with all that money is just funding themselves. If you remember the Swiss leaks, HSBC, Switzerland? The top three countries with the most amount of money, the top three nationalities of the account holders was number one, I think, US, number two, China, and number three, Venezuela, which is a country that's very, very small in comparison to, to those two. And it's just a staggering amount of money. I think it was $11 billion just in one bank in Switzerland. So you can imagine the amount of money that these people have that they're just funneling to themselves and they, they just don't care about redistributing or or funding basic services or the possibility of them losing an election and and giving power it's just not in the cards because they they have racked up on human rights violations and they know that if they give power to other people they will be investigated and they will be found guilty this is the situation where we are right now they have been shut out of credit markets 
because of their behavior. And in this case, I think sanctions will be a thing of the past in a few years if cryptocurrencies keep growing because money that is unstoppable, if it works for the citizens, it will eventually work. It will work its way up to governments and governments will be able to, when this is big enough, when the market cap of all cryptos is bigger, I think it's going to be nearly impossible to deny credit to governments who, who require it. But right now, they're in this awkward position where cryptocurrencies are not big enough yet. So they're trying to get funding desperately, whatever way they, they, they can. Right now, it's just the, the situation is not helping them very much. But they're, I think they're trying. They're, they're really trying. They're just really technically inept, too. So like the launch of the Petro was really was a show worth watching, like the incompetence of the government in, you know, every way, you know, the website wasn't working, the emails weren't going through, the KYC process was a, was a joke. Like I, I registered for the KYC for the Petro, I, I just uploaded a blank image and they, <laughs> they gave me access. Wow. So, so I want to hear more details about that, Alejandro, but can we just zoom out for a minute and take a bird's eye view? Like in the most neutral sense, what is the basic idea of the Petro? What kind of cryptocurrency is it? What is this, the whole like, how does it tie in with maybe being backed by oil? We've talked about a lot of the political aspects of it, but what is the sort of like two sentence overview of what it's supposed to be? Sure. So the Petro doesn't need to be necessarily something that is used by an oppressive government or, or by a government that doesn't want the best for their citizens. And I think that this is where Adam wants to come in as the devil's advocate here, because it's possible that a, a state issues a crypto asset that has some function and, and that serves their citizens in some way. What a responsible government would try to do with something like the Petro would be to encode the wealth of the country, in this case, the oil wealth, into a digital form. So tokenize the oil. I don't know that, this, that much about it, but I think uh, some people talk about using oracles. Let's say you have an oil field that is productive. In this case, it's, it's not what, what's happening right now. But let's say you have an oil field that's productive and you have a way to verifiably, when you pump oil out of the ground, you could tokenize that oil and, you, you, and the, the machines that are running in the place, and, and you, you need to verify this with, with like uh, fault-tolerant systems, the machines are telling you, okay, so you've pumped this much out of the ground. And, and that maybe produces a, a kind of tokenized asset. And when you have that tokenized asset, uh, you could sell it to other people and that becomes a binding contract to give them that oil. If that was done in that way, then I think the, the Petro could be in a way backed by oil, could be a crypto asset that is actually backed by a real world asset. But I, I, don't, I don't think we don't have the, the technology or the processes in, quite in place for that kind of, of, of thing. You, you would know more about that, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. So that's how it could be done theoretically, but that's not what the Venezuelan government is doing. Right. So what they're doing is they have a, an oil field that's not operative and they say, okay, so whatever comes out of the ground, you know, in the future from this oil field, which by the way, it requires like $10 billion in investment to even produce something. And it will require years of developing the, the field. They're saying, okay, so from this, because we are a rich country and they don't give much details because it's intentional, we are going to take the future proceeds from this oil field and we are going to issue a cryptocurrency. We're going to issue 100 million units just because we want to. This supposedly will be the backing. So the, the, the oil field that holds all those, those barrels, so supposedly 100 million barrels of that oil field will be the backing of this new cryptocurrency that we, we just issued out of thin air. 
Some would say not by thin air, some would say by fiat. I don't know, like, because how, how much did they spend to do that? I'm tracking the NEM blockchain, so they decided to issue the petrol in the NEM, NEM blockchain. The only thing that you need to do to issue a mosaic there, which is the, their kind of tokens, is about $30. So with $30, you can print as much currency as you want. Wow. So the real problem with what, uh, not just Venezuela, but what many people who create tokens, especially tokens that don't have their own operative functional layer one blockchain, but tokens that are built on top of other blockchains, is that really what you're doing is you're creating a tokenized asset that is only as good as the party that is tokenizing it. So when I look at a country like Venezuela, and this is not just Venezuela, it's really any sort of exploitative socialist economy. Really what I see is I see a trust fund idiot, if that makes sense, right? It's like the prior generation did a really good job, right? And built companies and acquired resources and acquired assets that then make it so that the people who come afterwards, even if they're terrible at managing things, and even if they do not do the right things at all, still has a lot of rope to hang themselves with effectively before you actually get to a point where that needs to be acknowledged. And it seems like over and over again, that's what's happened with these types of situations is that a socialist government comes into power by nature of the way that they operate and the priorities that they set. They kind of mismanage or really badly mismanage the resources that are present, that it's effectively the wealth of the nation. And then in the process of drawing that down, you know, it might take a long time for them to get there, but eventually you get to that point where the system just becomes unsustainable. And so that really in Venezuela seems to be what, what's happened is that Venezuela, in terms of natural resources, in terms of companies that used to exist there in non-nationalized form, was a very productive, very wealthy nation. And through the sort of socialist approach to governance, much of that has been squandered. And so now they're at a point where they're looking at future resources that they don't currently have the ability to really recover now, and they're trying to financialize or monetize those things. This is actually something that is not new to tokenization. Since 2014, I've talked with lots and lots and lots of people in companies who have been interested in doing this, taking a gold mine that you know hasn't yet been drilled, but they have test results from it, and effectively trying to tokenize and create financial assets based off of stuff that's still in the ground. And the question always comes back to, do you trust the person who has to do the recovery? Or what exactly is the commitment, right? So that's the problem here in a nutshell from my perspective is that, yes, the vehicle is trustless, but the delivery of the vehicle, the thing that guarantees the value of the vehicle, that's not trustless. You have to trust not just in their willingness to honor the agreement, but also in their ability to honor the agreement. And it's that ability that seems to be the problem. I'd like to take it a, even a, a step further back, which is, I think socialism is a symptom, not a cause in this particular case. And it's easy to kind of bundle all of this into a political bull from, you know, effectively the previous century. The bottom line, I think, is that this seems to be something that happens consistently to resource extraction economies. Any country or geography that has had the seemingly good fortune to be above abundant sources of gas, oil, or other extractable resources, blood diamonds in the Congo, uh, cobalt, various rare earth minerals that can be used in cell phones, things like that, any situation like that. And what happens is that the primary source of income for that geography is something that is extracted from the earth rather than something that arises from the labor of a middle class or labor class, or agricultural class. And as a result, democracy doesn't matter. And the reason democracy doesn't matter is because 
If you have a middle class that is the primary source of productivity and income for the country, then their vote matters because they're your productive resource and they are essentially the resource you need to protect. The moment you don't have that, then you can use the resource that is extracted from the ground to pay off whoever causes a ruckus. I would say that Saudi Arabia isn't socialist at all. The political system there doesn't really resemble socialism. It's a corrupt dictatorship that mostly follows crony capitalism as an ideal, but it follows the exact same pattern as Venezuela. The Congo isn't socialist. Socialism is just one of the potential forms of government or forms of dictatorship that can arise out of a resource extraction economy. The problem is the middle class is not important. The problem is the people are not important because oil or whatever else coming out of the ground is the important resource. The reason I bring that point out is because if you ascribe it to socialism, you can miss the bigger point. Uh, for example, the U.S. has now become a resource extraction economy where the resource they're extracting is debt and leveraged financial debt. And so as a result, we are no longer the resource productive aspect of the nation. Wall Street is. And that is corrupting our democracy just as fast as oil corrupted Venezuela's democracy. So if you think socialism is the cause, you miss the underlying dynamics. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by EasyDNS.com. In a world full of speculative opportunities and questionable values, when it comes to your websites and hosting needs, you don't want to gamble. EasyDNS is a full-service domain, DNS, email, and hosting provider based in Canada who thinks your rights matter just as much as you do. EasyDNS is also a longtime sponsor of the show and has been accepting Bitcoin, Ethereum, and now Bitcoin Cash since long before it was cool. When you're thinking about how best to serve your website and its users, think EasyDNS.com. On another note, the Proof of Shirt's initial close offering ends soon, so if you'd like to take advantage of the pre-sale offer, you can pick up two shirts for the bargain price of $25. Head over to ProofofShirts.com and check out today with Bitcoin or Ethereum. Talking about this sort of project, right? Talking about the sort of tokenization and the sort of kind of nation-state involvement that we're seeing. In the early days of cryptocurrency, we saw people who were disenfranchised by the existing system, primarily people who are interested in illegal types of commerce like drugs, or people who are disenfranchised ideologically by the system, like libertarians and many of those of us who are early to the space and interested in it because it presented a better form of money just at a fundamental level. What we're seeing now with Venezuela's Petro and then the Iranian talk that's been going on. And there are many other countries around the world and municipalities around the world that have been talking about doing cryptocurrencies in similar ways, but which haven't actually yet come to pass, sort of represent the early stages of this nation-state crypto thing. And back in the earliest days, we talked about how really cryptocurrency can represent, on the one hand, an escape valve, allowing people to effectively opt out of their national currency and opt into a currency that's tied to this more internet-wide global thing, which in some cases is risky because of the volatility, and in other cases is a lifeline because there really are no better options for it. A country like Greece that had sort of repeatedly defaulted on their debt could actually reissue a fiat token that had provable transparent backing by cryptocurrencies that they did not issue. 
And so people have talked about the idea that Venezuela could have used cryptocurrency, you know, could have used Bitcoin, could have used Ethereum, something like that, not to create their own token, but just kind of as a money that they would be able to use and that would be functional within their system. And as kind of the earliest of early adopters at the nation state level could potentially start a cascade where you would see more nations come on. And as those nations would start to use these neutral cryptocurrencies, the earliest nations would be the beneficiaries of a windfall because the value of the currencies would go up as value transfers out of the local economy and into this, again, globalized uh, economy where you don't have to trust a country that has defaulted repeatedly on their currency or other types of things like that. So there are sort of useful ways to do this, but the tokenized kind of extraction model, even something like that, in theory, is possible. It could be actually very useful. And the way I think we'd see that work, again, like if we were talking about this in an abstract sense, is that a country issues a cryptocurrency, and then that country accepts that cryptocurrency back for taxes. And in doing so, you create a type of beneficial system where there's actually a reason for someone to use the cryptocurrency, whether at a national level, because you are going to use it to pay taxes at the end of the day, or at kind of an international level, because someone could use it to pay taxes and the ability to use it to pay taxes or do whatever else, you know, buy oil, there are many other things you could do with it, represents a type of stable, predictable value that means that there can actually be trust in this thing. And then that benefits the government or other organization that issues the token, because once they've accepted that token back, they can actually sell that token again, right? So if a government, even if they give away all of the token for free at first, if they then were to accept it back and create a stable value or a growing value for that token, they get to resell it back into the marketplace and make whatever types of currencies that they need in order to pay their international obligations. And you could see this sort of beneficial cycle that could start. Or we hired Goldman Sachs to systemically create fraud on all of our balance sheets representation so that we could defraud an entire multinational conglomerate nation state called the EU, because that never <laughs> happens with countries. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Adam. And, you know, what, what's different about issuing it in a token form? Like the, the Venezuelans the, or the Venezuelan government has been doing the exact same thing you just described with the Bolivar. That's what they do. They issue Bolivares and they accept it as form of payments. They, they accept it for taxes. They accept it for, you know, government services. But they print just so much of it that they've created the hyperinflationary style that we're in right now. What does the, the cryptocurrency form bring that is new to the equation here? Mm, the ability to restrict absolutely the amount of issuance, the ability to set programmatically the amount of issuance, right? So if you don't trust the government, then one of the things that they do, as we've been talking about, is they like to print more money. But if you actually have a cryptocurrency, right, and you build it in a way that allows you to actually guarantee this, then that cryptocurrency can have set, fixed, mathematically provable issuance rates. And so whereas right now I wouldn't trust the boulevard with my life because, as you say, they are hyperinflating, continuing to print more and more, they could, by doing it this way, prove that they're not going to do that in the future. And yeah, they could issue another token and could go down that rabbit hole. But for this particular type of currency, you could have absolute surety. Now, it's a question of what blockchain you put it on, right? Because not all blockchains have that immutability. Yeah, that, that would have to be a decentralized mining or decentralized consensus model in order to do that. And I, I don't see any, any scenario in the near future where a country basically gives up its monetary sovereignty voluntarily to create a cryptocurrency that is actually decentralized and managed by decentralized consensus algorithm. I mean, that's a pipe dream to me. They're very scared of doing that. 
they wouldn't do it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Petro is nothing of the sort. The Petro is a fake blockchain. It's not... Right. It's a Bino. It's a blockchain name only. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because they, they just want to ride on the fad. It's literally just oil futures on the basis that they have oil reserves or proven oil reserves, the largest in the world. And then the question then becomes, is the pre-selling of oil futures means that they can actually deliver on the fact that they have the proven reserves? Because getting it out of the ground is entirely different than selling a future on the basis of being able to deliver it. And the question becomes that the way that Venezuela manages their country five years from now is the fact that they have, what is that, 300 billion barrels of oil in the ground any more real than the fact that there's a hundred, you know, billion ton comet of gold up there in the asteroid? Is, is it any more recoverable if I were to sell gold futures on that comet? And if I were Venezuela saying, look, you know, if we were a properly managed nation, we could, in theory, get 300 billion barrels out, but they can't even get their oil tankers into international waters because they can't clean the grime off of them correctly. Like, if there's an article that came out last month that some of their oil tankers aren't even up to international water standards to be even used in the shipment of oil. So the question that they're capable of delivering even a scintilla of the amount of proven reserves they have let alone that they'll properly manage the representations of the futures that they're selling on their own spreadsheet, seems to me highly suspicious. And the 30% discount seems like an underrepresentation of the risk-reward ratio that you're taking in purchasing their futures. i just like to say that given even a bare five-slide PowerPoint by Elon Musk, I would probably buy Astro Gold futures for cryptocurrency, because that seems like a far more viable path to exploitation than the Petro. You're probably right. The bottom line here is trust. And if you're building a decentralized crypto, then you are assuming that trust lies in the consensus algorithm that is decentralized, which means that you can use a term like trustless and, and not be laughed at. But in this particular case, the problem that Venezuela's government has is that it has no credibility. It has no trust to build, exploit, deliver on any of its promises. And it has no trust internally by its own people. It has no trust externally by creditors. It has no trust at all by anyone. And so a crypto that is centralized requires you to trust the issuer. And the problem that the petrol is supposed to solve is that Venezuela's government has no trust, and it doesn't solve that problem. Because in order to trust the Petro, you have to trust the Venezuelan government, and that's the thing you can't do. Yeah, basically, they're trying to manufacture trust just by saying, hey, now we're using crypto, so it's all good, right? Like, now you can trust me. And it doesn't work like that. This is something that's becoming ever more prevalent, which is that when people use the word blockchain, they're using it by pretending that they are a proof-of-work method like a Bitcoin. That all of the assumptions that you take in the schema when you think of Bitcoin apply to their reality when they talk about their system. This sort of is apparent when I talk to projects and they go, oh, we're decentralized. And I go, oh, that's awesome. How do you do it? And they go, well, we use Ethereum. And I go, okay, but how are you decentralized? And they go, well, what do you mean? They go, how do you effectuate consensus on the updating of your app. And they go, oh, well, we just unilaterally update it. And I go, oh, so you're centralized. And they go, no, 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 we're decentralized. We use Ethereum. <laughs> Not realizing that if the methods of consensus on updating your system aren't decentralized, you're not decentralized. 
And for that and a whole host of other reasons, this has far more in common with a Ripple-style, Hyperledger-esque, blockchain-and-name-only sort of implementation than it has any form or semblance to a Bitcoin or proof-of-work-based Ethereum understanding of what decentralization or blockchain in the proper context even means. So I think, broadly speaking, the purpose of the Petro is to bypass sanctions. The Bolivar, due to its hyperinflation and also due to just, again, you know, international sanctions and things like that, doesn't work in the current global ecosystem, right? It barely works domestically, and it doesn't work at all anywhere outside of Venezuela. But here's my problem with Venezuela hyperinflating their currency. So if you look at all the nations of the world by GDP and by inflation rate, Venezuela's all the way out there by themselves. It's the largest country that is hyperinflating itself the most. So, I mean, this is their pattern. And then the question is, okay, so they're selling futures on the basis of their capacity to recover, extrapolate it out over some time horizon. How do I know that they won't hyperinflate the Petro token by misrepresenting what they claim they're able to recover every month from their oil reserves? So I would argue that what's happening is that they're going down the path of the least change required possible. And as Alejandro said, effectively what they're doing is they're just trying to keep things afloat. They're just trying to keep things going, keep things going, keep things going. So in a way, what they did with the Petro solves their immediate problem, which was the sanctions and the lockout effectively of capital markets, right? They sell the Petro, replaces the capital markets. No, no, no. But what I'm saying is that they can hyperinflate the Petro just by lying about their capacity to recover on a monthly basis. I, I appreciate that. That's what they're doing right now, because those are the problems they face right now. So it actually is possible, as we've been talking about, to essentially disintermediate yourself from all of these systems. And right now we're saying, well, it seems very unlikely that they'll do that because that seems like giving up control. And that would be worse than the current way that they're doing it. But that's the whole point, is that the Petro, in the way that they're doing it, I think we all agree, isn't going to work. And so you get to the end of that and you say, all right, well, what do they do next? And the answer at a certain point may be that they actually do take on the characteristics of the blockchain that actually do cut them out of that part of the equation. They're still the beneficiaries of the system. And if the system were to actually work, then they're major beneficiaries of the system. So that's, that's, that's what I'm saying is that that's not what they're doing right now, but based on the behavior so far and the history of actions, it feels like Venezuela is going to get to the point the fastest where their best available option is to create something that really does take the control out of their hands, because if the control is in their hands, then it no longer works and no one buys into it. This isn't the end. This is the beginning. And when this fails, I don't expect them to abandon cryptocurrency. I expect them to continue to take on more characteristics of the cryptocurrencies that do have those decentralized trust characteristics, because otherwise it will not work. And ultimately, I think what they are attempting to do is make it work, make it work longer, just a couple of months longer, maybe the short term goal. But again, as they fail at these more halfway steps, the all the way steps actually start to be things that might solve the problem. Nah. No, those are unobtainium steps. I mean, I, I like where you're going with it, but the bottom line is that this is not a situation where they could, even if they wanted to, take those actions. This is kicking the can down the road, which in itself is a futile effort. And the reason is the can is on fire, the road is on fire, and the foot kicking it is also on fire. This whole situation in Venezuela blows up long before the petrol 
gives them the ability to even postpone the inevitable, in my opinion, and certainly never reaches a point where magical competence falls from the sky, translates into the ability to magically execute on that competence and adopt these cryptocurrency things. Actually, what it's more like is you're sitting there and telling me that what they're trying to do is use the word blockchain without any of its characteristics that matter in order to proceed with business as usual to prop up what is, by any expectation of the future, a now failing endeavor. Sounds like the banking industry to me. Yeah. And that, that's a place to my point earlier that what they're really good at, this government, is staying in power so far indefinitely. They've stayed in power for 20 years, right? Tw wait, 20 whole years? That's like 60% of the way to being able to fulfill a single 30-year bond. <laughs> yeah. You see it with countries like Cuba, you see it with countries like North Korea, now, now Venezuela. They become better at this totalitarian state handling. And the only thing that they're really good at is keeping the military in check so that the military protects them. Because the citizens, if to their devices, if left to test, if, left, if, if they were to establish something similar to a liberal democracy, we would throw them out immediately. We cannot because they handle the resources in a way that they get benefits. So they, they can funnel the money to their accounts in Switzerland or wherever. And the military gets benefits, and it's a stable equilibrium for them in the meantime. And as long as they have access to extracting rents, they've been shrinking the pie for a while because they're so incompetent that they can't manage the oil industry well, they can't do a lot of things well, but they've been really good at decising and you know, maybe cutting, cutting off the people who are leech, leeching the most, but just keeping that circle of power very tight and very strong still. And that's why they're still in power. So as long as that, they kick the can down the road for as long as they can have that small circle in power protected by, by the rest of the military. I think that's going to come to a breaking point very soon because dude, there's simply not, not enough money to go around. And yes, the petrol might give them some oxygen. I, they, they claim they sold $3 billion. I, I highly doubt that. I, I don't know what, how much they've raised, but as long as they don't show the bank accounts, I'm, I don't believe them. They haven't even transferred any Petros on the blockchain. So all of the Petros are, I think, between four and five addresses that they control. This is like a last gambit to try to raise some money. It's not going to meaningfully change things for them because they, they, they won't have you know, magical competence like Andreas said, won't fall into them. They also won't get better at managing a state that is not dependent on, on seeking rent or, or on, on extracting rents. That's all they know how to do. So... Yeah, they, they expect to be able to do this indefinitely with the Petro, but they won't be able to because the markets already closed their doors, they're, they're being sanctioned, they're being shut off by the international community. And now even the crypto community is going to realize, hey, these guys, they're, they're scammers, and uh, we're not going to trust them. So once you've been shut down by international markets, by institutions, and then you've been shut down by the crypto markets, which are crazy and irrational, what do you do? Where do you get the money to keep going? You, you just you run out of places and you still can pump some oil out of the ground. Yes, but that's not going to be enough to keep your goons protecting you for, for very much longer. One of the characteristic images that's come out of Venezuela that I thought spoke volumes was a photo of a fairly young male and female military officer, fairly junior, kind of uh, not private, but one, maybe one or two levels above, posing for the television cameras in Venezuela, 
holding three rolls of toilet paper, a couple of bars of soap, and some other minor household items like that. And this was the loot. This was the payoff to keep the goons, to keep the people under control. You know, we're already at the end stage of this game. The moment when the best thing you can bribe your goons with is toilet paper. Not, not a pot with chicken in it, not meat, not a full meal, not riches in their next assignment, but simply toilet paper and three bars of soap. That shows how desperate they are that this still counts as a bribe. And it shows how close to the end game this is. To put this into perspective, last year, in 2017, the average Venezuelan lost 24 pounds. Yeah, tough. Yeah, this is serious. This is like no joke. Hey, everybody. In the next segment, we're going to talk in part about what those on the outside looking in on Venezuela can do to help. Normally, we don't do this, but the amount of good that can be done through modest donations from the outside is substantial. And aside from actions we're taking at the show, we thought that you might want to help too. First, if you want to donate to the not-for-profit public university we'll be talking about in the next section, you can go to alumusb.org slash donate. That's a-L-U-M-N-U-S-B dot org slash donate. If you want to just keep informed or help independent journalism on the ground in Venezuela, you can visit caracaschronicles.com, which is C-A-R-A-C-A-S-C-H-R-O-N-I-C-L-E-S dot com. We're also working on an initiative within the LTB show itself, which hopefully we'll be able to share with you during the next episode, so stay tuned for that. Final note, Let's Talk Bitcoin is now on the Lightning Network, and we are able to accept your Lightning tips and donations. You can donate to the show by visiting letstalkbitcoin.com and visiting the page for episode 365, where you'll find the NanoTipper link in the show notes. Beyond tipping the show, you can also help us out just by opening a channel to us from a well-connected node. That will then let other people tip us without having to open their own channels, minimizing on-chain fees even further. You can find all of these details without having to remember how to spell it in the show notes at letstalkbitcoin.com. Thanks for listening. We rejoin the episode already in progress. So if this doesn't work and there's no slack in the system, which clearly there isn't, then what is left besides collapse or doing something so radical that nobody would expect it? So what would that be in your nerve view? Like having a truly decentralized country come in? Because they, they have legalized, If you, you, we could talk about that a little bit. Along with the Petro, I think what went unnoticed was that Maduro legalized other cryptocurrencies. So now it's legal in Venezuela to have Bitcoin operations and Litecoin and, and whatever. And they have been harassing miners and they've, they've been doing a lot of bad things to miners and, and they've added to the community. But now they claim that they are going to quit that 
because they need them as partners. And what they're going to do is they're just going to take a cut like a normal government does. They're going to take taxes or you know some sort of money from their proceeds of, of the miners. And besides the mining operations that they are requiring people to register and they, they want to have them regulated, they are enabling anyone who wants to, in theory, have Bitcoin transactions. And they don't no longer have to use the Bolivar. They, they can use cryptocurrencies. And I think it, that could be a great opportunity. And you don't need the government. You could do a sort of crypto airlift to Venezuela in a way, because if, if people are already, they're, they're getting more and more knowledge because th- this has been, the government has been pushing for, for cryptocurrencies in, in, in their propaganda even. So they know that the Petro exists. Like most people, what they've heard about is the Petro because that's what they push most often. But they also know because they've had to explain it on, on television and so on, that there's other cryptocurrencies that are slightly different. I don't know what, what they think about them. They maybe think, oh, it's an international money. They, they think it's more like the dollar. I'm not sure, but they, they're becoming aware that there's not just the petrol, there's others. And if they become aware of this and they, if there's enough cryptocurrency, let's say there's, there's enough Bitcoin in a town, in a small town, to start an economy and, and the Bitcoin that these people earn and give to each other is enough to import food from other places because obviously they can't produce their own food right now. But if it's enough to kickstart a, a very local economy, that could be a game changer for that small community. And that's something that I could see maybe playing out organically without the government's intervention and without the government having a say in it. We're talking about things that could happen with cryptocurrency that are outside of the government. If this doesn't work, what options are available? Do you think that they'll just let things collapse? Do you think we'll go into something like even worse in terms of military oppression or, or things like that? Like, do you have, you know, I, there's no answer to this question, obviously, but what is your sense based on how they've behaved in the past? What's the further escalation? My fear is that they just become a more repressive, oppressive state, you know, like Cuba, like North Korea. They would try to keep downsizing, as I mentioned earlier, and they would try to keep the circle of power as small as possible. I don't know how much that goes. Like, I, I, I don't know where that comes to a breaking point. And I, I think nobody knows. You can see Cuba. Cuba has been there, like sitting there. The Castro's have been ruling Cuba for ages. And they don't show any signs of, of being anywhere near collapse, in part because Venezuela has been helping them out for the last 20 years. But it seems to be like one resource extraction economy like supports the other. And now... It has to come to an end, but we don't know when the end is going to be. It's like trying to predict when North Korea start behaving more democratically or more openly. So what I fear is going to happen is that we're going to know less and less about what's going on in Venezuela. You know, we're we're going to lose the very little and very slow internet access that we have. You know, that's that's like the, the worst scenario for me. That's that's the thing that I don't want to happen. I think a good thing would be if it all collapsed very soon could start rebuilding the country before the government entrenches in power so tight that they that's there's no one that, that can take them out and that's fundamentally why i think these oil futures are pretty silly it's because there's a history of countries that know that they're about to collapse selling untold amounts of sovereign resources and then the administration that replaces it doesn't honor any of the old king's agreements yeah that's a good point so you go, hey, that's great. You had that agreement with the past sovereign leader. The funny thing was at least the evil bankers and the Rothschilds during World War II 
lent to both sides under the condition that whoever won, they had to honor the sovereign debt of the country that they were replacing. <laughs> I don't see that being the case with the Petro token. And the, the real thing you're betting on is, are you capable of getting delivery of your token before the net administration states that that was never an agreement that they will acknowledge as being real to begin with? Yeah, well, that's the game they've been playing with bonds, right? Well, that's, that's the joke I made about the 30-year bond, which is, you know, you're buying a 30-year bond from a 20-year-old country. <laughs> there you go. And they'll stop existing soon, because if cryptocurrencies become, like, as they become more mainstream, I, you cannot sanction anymore. It's just, you just can't. I think another insight that we should see from history is that sanctions don't work. Sanctions and embargoes don't work. They haven't worked in weakening North Korea. They haven't worked in weakening Cuba. They haven't worked with Venezuela. They haven't worked in the history of sanctions. It's never worked. You can uh, cause enormous hardship for the people. You can't, however, control the leaders. And so the sanctions end up having all of the negative side effects. They still destroy the local economy and cause people to starve without actually touching the leadership who have much easier ways to get access to international capital. So they have all the downsides, none of the supposed upsides that never worked. Anyway, one of the lessons that we seem to have gotten in Western nations is that some of the most important and effective tools was dropping shortwave radios into occupied countries to give them a window to the world. Airdropping food, supplies, radios, internet, wireless mesh cards, and things like that is far more effective and subversive as we don't seem to be able to do it. We could do something of the like in Venezuela with cryptocurrencies now if Venezuelan people are learning more about them. And, you know, many people have smartphones that are at least capable of running, you know, small applications like Toshi, for example, you know, that we could try to organize a, an airlift of sorts that involves getting cryptocurrency into the hands of people and, and seeing what they do with it. It's really hard to organize in a way that it'll actually benefit the people. Yeah, that doesn't sound very profitable for either Lockheed Martin or JP Morgan Chase, so I don't see why we'd ever do that. I actually have a friend of mine, Jonathan Warren, based here in New York, who is trying to get together, I think, a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin in donations from Lar Ales to try to do like Aurora coined Iceland-styled uh, Bitcoin airdrop to uh, every person in Venezuela, and just to try to initialize some sort of Bitcoin economy there. I forget what he names his project, but I, I do know there's at least one serious attempt at things that happen. And it, it's entirely through just get very large whales to sort of pull funds together and say, if this gets adopted in Venezuela in a very real way, the donation you gave us would be um, outsized by the increase in the health of Bitcoin's price as it relates to the network. So that's kind of his argument. And maybe we should have him on to talk about that project and that attempt. The cool thing about it is it's a non-revenue generating activity for all the participants involved. So it's sort of a cool attempt. Probably also bypasses the sanctions that are on U.S. individuals, which is kind of another complicating factor when it comes to actually trying to help any of these places. It seems like really what sanctions have accomplished almost everywhere I've seen them effectively levied is that they cause hyperinflation, right? By locking governments out of the global economy and by making it more difficult to do trade, it applies more pressure that then leads them down that devaluation path even further, which then leads to hyperinflation. I mean, American sanctions have led to Venezuela imploding as a country or has been a co-contributing factor. Mm, well, no, I would, I would really push back strongly against that because there was problems with scarcity in Venezuela since 2012 at least. 
So I don't think sanctions are responsible for the crisis. I think they may have worsened some parts of it. And especially because the sanctions, if you look at them, if you read them, most of them are, are geared and, and are directed sanctions at specific government officials. So they're, they're freezing their accounts in dollars in the U.S. That does nothing to the people of Venezuela. That, that doesn't have any effect on them. It has an effect insofar as the people that are in government, they can't get access to their accounts elsewhere. It doesn't have any, any effect on, on people. I think what the, the sanctions have accomplished is they have shut Venezuela off from credit markets. And that, I think, is the part that you could argue that has been more impactful for Venezuela in, in a way. I don't know if there is an answer to this question. You know, we've kind of talked about some ideas on the airdrop side, things like that. You know, for people who are kind of in the cryptocurrency community, you know, are there, are there any initiatives that we should be paying attention to that actually seem to you, Alejandro, like they have an opportunity or a chance that they could help substantially? Like, what, what can we do as people on the outside looking in uh, to help? If anything, yes. Yeah, so I I know of, of a few projects that are trying to help Venezuelans in in some ways. So there's my friend Jonathan Khan and, and David Hay. They are trying to get one of the border cities of Venezuela, Cúcuta. They're trying to bootstrap a cryptocurrency friendly city where merchants are accepting cryptocurrencies and where one of one of the ideas that they have is maybe airdropping some coin to the Venezuelan refugees that are there and that it's easy to verify that their status of refugees. So you, you'd have to handle the KYC and all that. That's tricky, but it's possible. And then you could give those people a way to access goods and services on the other side of the border, because as you know, you can't trade bolivares to pesos or, or to dollars freely. And, and when you can, you get charged exorbitant rates and the more believers you hold, the harder it is for you to exchange them and you have to take them across the border and you're subject to harassment and, and extortion at the border. So if you had access to cryptocurrencies and you could start not with nothing, but with something, you could maybe get, get access to food, to medicine. It's a, like a long term idea that they have. Because, the, I mean, the crisis is going to keep going. The, the Venezuelans are going to keep pouring out of the borders. It's not an island like Cuba. Venezuela is surrounded. You know, there, there's lots of refugees now in, in Brazil, in the state of Roraima, in Boa Vista. They actually declared a state of emergency there because Venezuelans are pouring in. Some of them have diseases that they haven't seen in such a long time because the situation there is, is so dire. Also in Cucuta. So in this, this specific project is about getting Cucuta to be friendly, to get started with crypto and, and to get the people to, to use some other currency. And, and the, you know, for example, Zuko has expressed that he wants to donate Zcash to Venezuelans and he's not sure how to do it. And I'm, I'm trying to help him figure out or try to find a way to do that. So maybe if the Zcash Foundation, for example, is interested in proving a real world use, they could donate some money to this project of, of Crypto Kukuta, for example. And, and in return, they would get, you know, merchants to adopt them. And we would run like this little experiment where we would see how people behave when they have access to a coin, when a cryptocurrency is in circulation for real goods and services. And that's interesting for the foundations and the, and the crypto companies. And it's interesting for the Venezuelans who are there and have no other recourse. So I think the interesting project to, to keep in, in mind, I've been trying to do something different because we have elections coming up soon. On the 20th of May, Maduro called for these elections that no one's really paying much attention to because we know they're going to be rigged. They had picked the candidate that's going to run against him. Basically, they barred anyone else from running 
So the the opposition is very demoralized, and it's it just it doesn't feel like election season to me. It, it feels like it's going to be we're going straight to the end where Maduro is just going to crown himself. Yeah, rubber stamped credibility again. Yes, exactly. So what I've thought about is what if we could make a bounty that gave people cryptocurrency in exchange for documenting the abuses that occur during election day. So sometimes there's people that are standing behind you when you cast your vote so they know that you're voting for the government. Sometimes there's people that are giving you or require you to have a government-issued ID that not a lot of people have because it, it kind of signals allegiance to the party. You know, there's lots of things that you could document photographically or just tell the story. Maybe that could bring attention to the illegality of the election or the illegitimacy of, of the election. That's something that could be done because it's hard to give a, a reward to these, uh, you know, network of people who, who might be interested in, in capturing the, the things that go on in the election. So if you had something like Toshi, for example, anyone in, anyone in Venezuela pretty much can use WhatsApp. And Toshi is a WhatsApp on stairs that have, has a wallet enabled. So I actually made a bot, but the bot isn't fully functional right now because there's some technical issues on the Toshi side. But if, the, if you could talk to the bot and say, hey, I just witnessed a guy standing behind one of the voters. The, I'm, I'm on this location and this is an, uh, clearly an electoral abuse. And if you could gather those reports and say, okay, the, the best 100 reports I'm going to reward with $10 or something you know, meaningful for, for the people, then you, you get a lot more, more volunteers for being witnesses of, of the abuse that's going on. And I don't know how much use that is because people that listen to your audience, like people in your audience, people that listen to this show and, and people in the international community, they're aware that this election is a sham. But if there's some record of it, that, that could bring maybe some extra attention into Venezuela and that could maybe precipitate regime change in a way. I, I just don't know. I, I, I'm trying many things, but I don't, I don't know what will work. So. And, and being outside is difficult because you some ways out of touch with reality. So you have to constantly check in with what's going on. I have many friends there still, and I, I talk with them daily. But it, it's hard to imagine life in, in a place where money does, just is, doesn't work. It's, money is broken there and, and where you are always subject to, to these abuses. And it's the normal thing. Like you already know that you have to pay extra to the guy that brings the meat because he had to bribe the officer and he had to bribe the National Guard and so on. And that, that's normal. Like corruption has become normal in our society. It looks like about two days ago, Maduro raised the minimum wage in preparation for the elections where he'd like to win. It looks like the current minimum monthly wage is about two and a half million bolivars, which is worth about $3.20 per month when you include the food voucher that the government gives you. So we're talking about very, very, very low values here in terms of that. Did he increase the wage or did he just make it illegal for people to work who make less than that? Both is, is what it looks like. So the thing that strikes me is that, you know, when you're talking about documenting these abuses, I think that there's like the international responsibility side, but I don't think that many people think that anything like that will help, right? Like the abuses are already pretty darn well known. And so it's less about kind of reporting on this as if it's news and more kind of just about getting actual information out. And so what strikes me as what might be really interesting, if you're talking about this documentation side, maybe it should just be taking it from a journalistic perspective, right? And actually just paying for on-the-ground Venezuelan contributions of journalism because the cost to value for someone inside the country 
is dramatically different than you see anywhere else in the rest of the world. You know, originally we powered the Let's Talk Bitcoin show and network based on tips in the Bitcoin economy. And as the kind of price went up of things, that became less viable. But now that we have things like Lightning coming out, you actually can do these sub-Satoshi, very, very small amount microtransactions with basically no transaction fee. It seems like maybe that's a path forward, maybe an endowment of, you know, $10,000, you know, $20,000, something like that, that in the Bitcoin space has become kind of small change for people who have a lot. But in this sort of situation could empower 100 people, 200 people to actually get this information out. And then you kill two birds with one stone, you improve their situation dramatically while also improving dramatically the quality of the information that's able to get out through this mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because I've been a volunteer for a news site called Caracas Chronicles. We do political analysis and we have people on the ground who are Venezuelans and who report on the things that go on. And we write in English and we happily take donations. We run on donations. We hit the crypto donation button about a month ago and we received some crypto donations and we're, we're thankful for that. And, you know, this, this is really you know, empowered the people that are still there. I mean, I, I don't take any salary or, or any compensation myself, but the people that are in Venezuela, this is very important for them because as little as 10 bucks can make a huge difference for their livelihoods. And, and you know, we, we've had people who report from rural regions, like there's the Merida state, there's the Bolivar state, where the conflict is actually happening and, and is, is getting harsher. And if these people have this ability to just report independently uh, and, and they have complete editorial control, then this could actually get the word out better. So I think if you're looking for a project informing about Venezuela, I think Caracas Chronicles is a good option. Also, you mentioned the endowment and actually working. I'm on the board of alumni association for the school where I graduated, which is actually a public school. I, I paid nothing for my computer science education. This school, it's the Universidad Simón Bolívar, has struggled for a long time because the professors are, have been leaving and it, it's, uh, since it's a public school, they don't, they don't have funds themselves. They are at the mercy of whatever the government gives them. And since they are independent thinkers, the government doesn't like the way that the education is there. It's a technical university, so they don't get much into politics or anything like that. But people inside, there's students inside that are more political than others. They have a riff with the government and they have been denied you know, the, the basic funds that they need to subsist. So we're trying to get a crypto endowment going for this university because for us, it's, you know, traditional endowments are low risk investments. But for this use case, you know, Venezuela's in such a big crisis right now that it, it would make sense for a university to try to stretch it and try to make it big, try to get funds from wherever, wherever it's, it's possible to get them. And if it's possible to, let's say, donate $1,000 or $2,000 now and, and the, watch that grow as Venezuela collapses, if the value of that goes up, then the university will have enough for years to come. It's, it's, a, it's like a placing a bet. And for the university, the risk to reward ratio for traditional universities that are doing well here in the States, like you know, Harvard Endowment is very conservative. But in this case, I think an endowment that is more aggressive would really has a chance of making a difference. So I'm, I'm ironing out the details. I'm, I'm not a finance guy, so I'm working with people who are better versed in finance to make this happen. But this is a project that we, that we have going on that hopefully will, will make better for the people there, that you know, the professors who are still there, 
university authorities, the, the, the few students who are still, they're, they're having their careers because uh, the reality is that, that most people have been leaving and, and it's very sad because it, it, it really provided great education. It, it really provided me the opportunity to go outside and to get uh, postgraduate education. And, and that's, that, that's the reason why I'm here. So when you talk about the endowment being less conservative than something like Harvard, what you're effectively saying is that it actually makes sense for them to keep the endowment in cryptocurrency as opposed to others who might say, oh, well, we would just rather have the dollars because cryptocurrency might go up or down. In this case, effectively, it's a bet that Venezuela is going to continue to hyperinflate, which seems like at this point a fairly safe bet. Yeah, no, but you, you could have an endowment in dollars. Right, right. Just anything besides the, the boulevard, basically. Exactly. But if you choose cryptocurrency, you have a huge upside potential. If you take it in dollars, yeah, you have enough for maybe operating expenses for a while, but you won't have that recovery that the university needs to, to be able to, to function properly because the, the government has starved the, the university for, for funds for quite a long time. Basically, it's like hoping for a miracle. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. If you'd like to get involved, visit the show notes at episode 365 on letstalkbitcoin.com. This episode was sponsored by EasyDNS.com and featured content by Alejandro, Andreas, Stephanie, Jonathan, and Adam. This episode featured music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin and Adam Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.